You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Anyone here who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ has a story. And um, our story we call our testimony. And uh, I, I know that I've shared my story probably a few times over the years. Um, and I just want to refer to uh, uh, one part of it this morning. I, I think I came to know the Lord around the age of 10. I remember exactly where I was and who I was with when I prayed. And uh, that first sinner's prayer, just acknowledging who Christ was and why I needed him, even as a 10-year-old who had grown up in a Christian home. And then when I got to be the age of 16, I, uh, I had several months of, of experimenting. <laughs> I would call it small r rebellion. And uh, just trying to know what my friends are experiencing, uh, smoking marijuana and drinking and doing that stuff. And, and um, during that time, uh, not all the time, but several times during that time, I remember that the heavy hand of God was upon me. And that's really the, the sermon about, about this morning. It's, it's about the heavy hand of God that can be against us or upon us. It, it was strong enough in my conscience, in my in my daily life, that there came a point by the grace of God when I just had to get that heavy hand off of me. And you can't do it any other way except through agreeing with what he thinks. And confession is the word that Scripture uses. And and I remember the way that I confessed it was with my mom. I remember sitting in our living room and she was praying for me during those days, of course, every day. And, and uh, I, I just, I don't know what it was, but it was this heavy hand that drove me to my knees. Can you imagine telling your mom at the age of 16 that you've been smoking marijuana? I mean, it's just kind of an odd thing, isn't it? Take your Bibles and turn to First Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to pick up the scripture. And we're going to talk about chapters 5, 6, and 7. And you will notice in this scripture uh, various times this morning the heavy hand of God. Not so much in the passage we're reading right now, but in chapters 5 and 6. And the, the story is that last week we looked at chapter 4 how Israel went off to battle and they took the Ark of the Covenant, this, this symbol of God's presence where he dwelt in the temple. This box had the Ten Commandments and some of the manna, manna in the desert in, in it. And they took it off to war and they lost the battle severely. And the Ark of the Covenant of the presence and glory of God is stolen by the Philistines. And it's in their territory for seven months that's what chapters 5 and 6 are about. And finally, it is returned. And we pick up the scripture now in chapter 7, beginning with verse 2. And we're going to read to verse 13. So if you're able to stand, please stand with me now. And it's, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter two, 7, 
beginning in verse 2. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all along the way to a point called Bethkar. And then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. May God bless his word. You may be seated. There is a word play in chapter 4 that we referred to last week that's very important in understanding chapters 5, 6, and 7. The word play is between the Hebrew word kabed, which means heavy, and the word kabad, which means glory. The word kabed is used for the heavy hand of God or for Eli in chapter 4, verse 18, when it's referred to that this man was heavy in his old age. And then there's the word kabod, which is glory. The glory of the Lord had departed. And, and here in the scriptures that we're looking at, this play on words is this heavy and this glory are intermingled in conceptual ways to almost severe, seem to understand, make us understand that if the glory of God is felt in, a, in the wrong way, it is going to reveal itself in the heavy hand of God. So if you're on the right side of the glory of God, you will be overwhelmed with wonder in the beauty of Jesus, the love of God and the incredible gift of forgiveness in his name. But if you're on the wrong side of that glory, it will feel like the heavy hand of God upon you. I don't know if you've ever felt the heavy hand of God. I I have not felt it more than a few hours since the time of my age 16 that I told you about. I have not felt the hand of God except for a few hours maybe at a time before confession and repentance and dealing with it before the Lord. It might come through in a, in a lump in your throat like guilt and shame can feel like. It might, it might feel a little bit like a, a heavy heart, like grief 
might feel. It might come to you in the headache form of conviction, or it might come in the sleeplessness of a bad conscience. It might be indigestion or tiredness that cannot be explained, or plans failing even though you keep on trying and trying and trying, or a lack of agreement with people that you're usually absolutely in line with. The heavy hand of God can feel a lot of different ways and no one or two even of those kinds of feelings or symptoms in themselves say that you are somehow under the heavy hand of God. You see, it takes a discerning mind and heart and a searching mind and heart to know whether you have actually come under the heavy hand of God or not. And we have examples in Scripture that show us in Numbers chapter 32 in the wilderness wanderings in chapter 32 verse 13 we read the Lord's anger burned against Israel because of their disobedience. In Judges 2.15 it says whenever Israel went out to fight the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. And again because of this waywardness everyone doing what was right in his own eyes. We read the Scripture earlier in the service of David, in Psalm 32, he said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That was because he had just committed adultery with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And to cover that sin up, he had another man, that man killed in battle. And he, his, the hand of God was heavy upon him. In Psalm 38, he says it again. He says it, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath for your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear, David says. And we could use other examples The only thing you need to know about the heavy hand of God is that the only time it will be upon you or against you is when you have sinned against God. That's the only time that God is going to be against you. Romans chapter 8 verse 31, that incredible scripture that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Wonderful truth. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Jesus. How will he not, along with Jesus, freely give us all things? That's the heart of God. That's who the Lord is. But you can take Romans 8.31 and switch it around and it's equally true. If God is for us, who could be against us? But if God is against us. Who who could be for us? Who cares who's for us? What does it matter who's for us if God is against us? The scriptures that we're looking at today remind us that God is not only against unbelievers in the sense that they remain in sin, in rebellion, and will not submit to Him, but that even a believer can feel the heavy hand of God against him or her. And if we do not slow down and get in step with God and listen to His Spirit, we can easily find ourselves in this proud, independent state 
of rejecting God or resisting God. It says in the scriptures that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That can be applied individually and it can be applied corporately. And you do not have to commit something as as severe maybe as adultery to have the heavy hand of God against you. Just simply not being sensitive, having a proud heart, a resistant will, a stubborn refusal, let go of something that God says you need to let go of and so on. Even collectively as a church, as we think about this year being a year of seeking the Lord's leading upon us as it regards the McGilvery property and whether we should build a building and move out of this building or not, I do not want to have the heavy hand of God against us. I don't believe it's going to be a guesswork. I don't believe God plays hide and seek. I don't believe it's going to be a mystery. We will be brought as a believing community to the place of knowing that it is God's will that we build. And to reject that would be to have the heavy hand of God upon us. Or we will come to a point where we know definitively together that it's not meant to be built. And we will to to go ahead and build would be definitely to have the hand of God against us. But I don't believe it's something that God is kind of making us guess on. I think the Lord is constraining us to seek him, to come before him, to come to unity, to seek his leading. And whatever we step out in, it has to be absolute faith. As someone prayed at one of the meetings that we were at, where we prayed over the first draft of the plans, Lord, keep us just enough off balance so that we do not trust in ourselves. It was this insensitivity to God that brought the heavy hand of the Lord against Israel in the first place. We talked to you about the story last week, how the two sons of of Eli, the priest, marched off foolishly like the Ark of the Covenant was this good luck charm. They lost the battle. The the Ark of the Covenant was taken away. And now if you'll take your Bibles and look at chapters 5 and 6 briefly with me, we notice what happened while the Ark of the Covenant was in Philistine territory. They take the Ark of the, of the Covenant of God to Ashdod, a city, and they put it in the temple of their false god, Dagon. Now, Dagon was a tall stone statue, their god of that land, of the Philistine people. And they put this box, this Ark of the Covenant, ahead of Dagon, and they go back to, to bed. They go, they go to bed. The next morning... Dagon is on his face, fallen over before this box of God. You see, uh, the, the Philistines thought that this was an absolute act of, of rebellion and of victory and of, of uh, our God is bigger than, better than your God. And so we're going to force the Hebrew God to sit in the temple of Dagon. But the next morning, it's Diagon that is broken and humbled. The next morning, they do the same. They have to prop up their God. The next morning, the same thing happens, except this time, it's not just that he's fallen over before the Ark of the Covenant, but his head has broken off and his arms. So they have to now patch their God back together, stand him up. But by the time that now has come, we read in chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Verse 7, they come to the conclusion, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. Don't you find it interesting 
that there's no thought here of maybe switching gods? <laughs> like maybe he's not all that he's cracked up to be. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're with me. Chapter 5, it says, it says in the scriptures, verse 7, the ark of God of Israel must not stay here. His hand is heavy upon us. So the people of Ashdod ship the ark of God off to another one of their cities. They, it goes to Gath. Verse 9, what happens there? After they moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city. Same thing, tumors and, and problems. And so... Verse 10, they sent the ark of God to Ekron, another Philistine city. And as the ark enters the city, the local people have heard the news. They cry out, we're going to die. What are they experiencing? They're experiencing the wrong side of the glory of God. They're experiencing the heavy hand of God. Verse 11, the conclusion they come to, send the ark of God of Israel away for death has come to us and God's hand was very heavy upon it. Chapter 6, verse 1, after seven months of this horror, the Philistine leaders gather and they get the priests and the diviners together. And in verse 2, it says, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? You see, no one in Philistine territory knows how to handle holy things. But they somehow come up with a, a plan. And the plan involves three steps. Number one, it should be sent back to Israel. Number two, it should not go empty. And number three, it should be accompanied with a guilt offering. Now, where they got the idea of a guilt offering from, we're not sure. They did not know the law of Moses like, like uh, we can see that Israel had. But maybe they did know something of it. What we do see is, of course, in all peoples, all peoples in all religions, is this sense of guilt, which comes from our conscience that God put within every one of us, and a sense of needing to appease that guilt somehow towards some being. And so somehow the, the Philistines have this sense of guilt and appeasement. And so they put together an offering, a guilt offering or sacrifice. And in, and in their thinking, the, the best thing they could come up with is, is to make gold tumors and gold rats. <laughs> you know, it seemed popular at the time in the land of Philistines. And so they put together five gold tumors, five gold rats. They put it on a brand new cart. They get two cows, oxen, that have never left the stall. And they hitch them up and they set them loose. And here is their conclusion. Six, verse six, uh, chapter 6, 8 and 9 and so on. It says in their minds, this is their conclusion. If these two cows that have never left the stall go from point A in Ekron, here in Philistine country, to the nearest Israelite town, which is Beth Shemesh, seven miles away east. If they take the direct route and go directly there, the Philistine leaders say, we will know this is of God, the Hebrew God that did this. But if they do not go directly there, then we'll know that this is all by chance. Verse nine, we'll know that it's all by chance. Well, what happens? Lo and behold, they let set these cows free and they take the Ark of the Covenant with the offering of gold directly to that town, Beth Shemesh, seven miles east. 
And the scriptures say in verse 16 that the five Philistine rulers saw the whole thing. They saw the whole thing. This is incredible. And then it says they went back to Ekron. Do you know somebody in your life that saw the glory of God up front, felt the heavy hand of God upon them, and then just were glad to be rid of them without any change of heart? This is a scary place to be. You know, the other thing that we must acknowledge here is that for seven months, without the help of one Israelite believer, God bore witness in a foreign country to his glory and presence and reality. Just like today, in many nations on the earth today, where Many Christians are not allowed entrance and many national believers do not exist. God is bearing witness of his own glory in countless ways. We hear testimony of it. People coming from Islamic nations coming to know Jesus Christ. People that are coming, we heard it in India, places like Nepal, who are coming through dreams and visions to know the God of the Bible. People that are learning about Jesus through the internet and through scriptures, through literature and through dreams and through uh, suffering even and warfare. God is making himself known. Now, does that nullify the Great Commission? Not at all. We are commanded, invited to go out and to make disciples, share the good news with all nations. And we want to go, but we must never think somehow that God, when we go, has not already been there. Among that people. That's the God of missions. You read in the scriptures. The ark now is in Israelite territory. Beth Shemesh. The Levites are called. They also. Some of them do not know how to handle the holy things of God. And so some of them out of curiosity. Lift the lid of this ark of the covenant. This box. And they're struck dead. Seventy of them. Israel is shaken to the core. The people of Beth Shemesh do not know what to do. They cry out to the Lord. And now we come to the text that we read earlier in verse 2. And it says that they cry out to the Lord. Now, maybe one of the most surprising things of the scripture that we're looking at is the 20 years that the ark of God sits in this place, the home of Eleazar. And for the record, it probably stays there for many more years until David, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, retrieves it and takes it to Jerusalem. And here, in, for 20 years, we think, well, wh- wh- why did it take 20 years? Why not five years earlier, 10, 15, 19, whatever? Why did it take them so long before we read, it says that the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. We must know that the scripture does not say that they, they mourned and, and sought the Lord for 20 years. It says that after 20 years, they mourned and sought the Lord. Why did it take so long? What a mystery. It, it should be somehow encouragement to us who might know someone that, that seemed to walk with God and, and years have gone by and they've walked away. It should give us encouragement and hope to know that even after such a long period, because the longer it goes, the more dangerous it gets. 
it should encourage us to know that God yet could grant them repentance, leading to faith, and, and bring them back to Himself. And, and the first step in returning to the Lord, which you see in your bulletin insert according to the Gospel of Samuel, is, is simply return. For a person who's never known the Lord, it means turn to God and turn away from sin. But for the person like the Israelites who had known the Lord, it says return. Return to Him who is your first love. Return to Him who is the God that your hearts worship. This returning is the same thing that David does in Psalm 32, or Jacob does in Genesis 32, or, or Peter does after the resurrection, or the, the prodigal son does in the parable that Jesus tells. It's this returning, it's this waking up, it's this acknowledgement of where you are honestly with God. Just return to that place and agree with Him. And you can start then to walk with Him again. Where's that? Where's Samuel during these 20 years? Well, we can only conjecture that he was preaching, seeking to bring Israel to leaders, to uh, submission to the Lord. It, it, it almost gets the impression from verse 6 that maybe they were not listening to Samuel's leadership for these 20 years, but finally they listened to him. And what does he say in chapter 7 and, and verse 3? It says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourselves of your foreign gods and ashtrests and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. Verse 4, So the Israelites put away their bales and ashtrests and served the Lord only. Twice in these two verses, the word only is emphasized because you see, God is a jealous God. He will not play with you. He will not allow you to compete uh, with other gods in your heart, other affections upon your hearts. He is a jealous God. Because he's not just jealous for his own glory. He's jealous for you because his uh, life in you is, is the best life you could ever live. You were created to be a God-glorifying and worshiping person. And so he says to the Israelites, either you need to get to destroy these other gods, these Baals and Ashtoreths. Baal is the god of fertility among the Canaanites. And Ashtoreths were his wives. And they would engage in sexual practice, rituals. They had ornaments in their homes which reminded them of it. And they would do these things in absolute rebellion against the Lord God who had a different plan for their lives. And Samuel says, if you're really returning to the Lord, then you can't just sort of say it and, and keep on the duplicity and, and the double life. But the Bible says the double-minded man is unstable in all he does. He says, instead, return to the Lord and get rid of them. And the get rid of doesn't mean just kind of put them in the closet for another day. Get rid of them means destroy them. The message is either you destroy them or they're going to destroy you. That's the message that sinners must hear. And so God, in his supremacy, in his jealousy, tries to, to woo his people back to him. And by the grace and mercy of God, they... Their, their conscience is struck. The heavy hand of God has done its work. And, and they return to Him. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're going to conclude the service singing about that. You see, our hearts are idol-making factories. It's like Soren Kierkegaard said once. He said that we are a people prone to worship our work 
Work at our play and play at our worship. <laughs> That's what we're like. That's what our hearts are given to. Now, God's, God's not beating us up over that. That's our condition. But God is against you if you don't agree with that condition and say, God, I want you in my life. I want you to be supreme and Lord over all. He asks that we confess. The word confess, it means simply just agree with him. Just agree. Start there. If you're in agreement with God, he can do amazing things with your life. And so return to the Lord, remove the other gods. And then thirdly, repent and confess your sin. Verse six says on that day, they fasted and there they confessed we have sinned against the Lord. Something powerful about not just making a confession between you and God in privacy, but rather making it public. In this situation, Samuel was the one that was the representative of God for the people of Israel. And they said their confession to God before Samuel. You and I believe that we are offering each other this representation of God and we can go to one another and confess our sins before the Lord. We believe as Christians in in the priesthood of all believers. We all have equal access to God. We can go to God on each other's behalf to our high priest, Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father interceding. And we need to make use of this incredible privilege that we have in the community of faith with friendship in Christ. James 5.16 says it very clearly. When we are told that we have the opportunity to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other so that we may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book called Life Together says that, that the one who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers, hear this. Though they have fellowship with one another as believers, they do not have fellowship with one another as sinners. You see, they don't bring their sin to church. Bonhoeffer goes on and on in this, in this part of his, his book. We don't bring our sin to church. We don't confess our sins to one another. We have fellowship as devout, nice, pretty religious people. But we don't have fellowship down in the gutter as sinners, which we all are. And he says, therefore, the sin goes underground and it stays in the dark and it's more destructive. And the longer it stays there, the more it destroys. Since the confession of sin, though, is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives up his evil. His heart is given to God. He finds forgiveness. And in fellowship with God in Jesus Christ and his brother, there is healing. We... Struggle more with sin, Bonhoeffer is saying, is because we do not confess it to another trusted friend in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we do not have the prayer, we do not have the power. Do you have someone in your life like that? If you don't, you're, you're not running when all cylinders. Your Christian life will be weaker. You will be more of a target of the enemy and of sin. 
I cannot say to you, I don't know where I would be today if I did not make a habit of confessing my sin to my wife. And wherever I have lived, one of the first priorities has been to seek out trusted brothers in Christ. Men that I just open up my heart to. I walk with them. They know the garbage of my life. They're the ones I call after a couple of hours of the heavy hand of God. I hope you have someone like that. Finally, the fourth point. Return to the Lord. Remove foreign gods. Rid yourselves of them and confess your sin. And finally, rely on the Lord to intercede. The intervention of Samuel is a picture of Jesus Christ for us. Not only is Christ our high priest, who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. Incredible, incredible message. Jesus Christ right now, even as I am preaching... Jesus Christ is saying your name, Christian, before God the Father right now. He is saying your name before God the Father. He is interceding for you on your behalf. And the reason that he can say your name and know that his prayer is going to be effective, you see, is because even as the scripture that we're looking at tells us of not only Samuel's intercession in prayer, but also the sacrificial lamb that he offers, Jesus is both the intercessor and the sacrifice. And so you see, when Jesus goes to the Father, God himself, in your, on your behalf, he has already deposited Whatever grace is needed for your sin, by his atonement at the cross, by his sacrifice for sinners, he has put righteousness abundant in heaven at your, at your request. And so he goes to God on your behalf and he says, I need to come on behalf of Terry again. And I need to come and, and here's what's happened. What does God the Father say? Uh, that guy again, he, he's, he's over limit, he's overdrawn. No, you see, he doesn't, he doesn't interpret it according to me. He looks at his son, Jesus. And he says, whatever you ask, of course. On behalf of Terry, in the name of Jesus, I give it to you. Rich, abundant, free, mercy. And in this scripture, when, when Samuel intercedes and offers the lamb, what happens is the Philistines attack and they're about to be consumed, but they cry out to Samuel and they say, keep, keep, keep crying out on our behalf. And God thunders from heaven and he just scatters the Philistines. Israel runs out and Slaughters them, their enemy. What is this a picture of, friends? It's a picture of the believer standing simply in the mercy of God with the power of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ upon him. Your enemies may be big. You think that the enemies of your flesh, the enemies of the world, the enemy of the devil himself, they're, they're nothing that 
God in heaven cannot thunder against, throw into confusion, and give you victory over. Nothing. Let's sing together this hymn that we've talked about. The scripture that we're looking at ends with Samuel setting up a stone. They did that a lot in the Old Testament. The stone is called Ebenezer. Far from what you might think Ebenezer is all about. The stone is called Ebenezer. It means stone of help. And underneath it was labeled, thus far has the Lord helped us. And today you might want to raise your own stone of Ebenezer and thank the Lord that thus far he has helped you. And you can, he can be your help in the days to come as well. Stand together. Come now, found of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by flaming tongues above Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy redeeming love Here I raise I don't know if you heard the sermon this morning. Terry would like us this year, at the end of the year, to make a united decision. We are different. We don't come into this year 
about the building program with exactly the same mind. What he wants is for us by the end of the year, whatever the decision, it be united. That's going to take a miracle. And you know, tragically in our churches, we've stopped talking about miracles. But we did start by singing, there's power in the blood. And all the way through the message, my heart's been crying out, oh God, we, we've got to come back for a miracle. I've had some in my own life recently where issues and sins that I just couldn't get rid of with a bit of agonizing prayer disappear. And there's a scripture, I know it's not part of the sermon, but I couldn't help but stick it out. It, it's in the New Living Translation from Corinthians, or from Romans. Clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Get up in the morning. Stand in the presence of God. Let him see the fact that our clothes are filthy rags. Take them off and put on the cloth, cloth of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for the day. And see if you don't have miracles working in your life and in your family life and in our church life. Oh, God. You who are the incredible, incredible leader of miracles, we bow and ask that you bless us with the faith that makes us bend our knee and have you change our hearts and our minds and bring us to a new freedom from sin and a new spirit of worship, now and forever. Amen.